And just to see this face go frozen and not know what to say next. Mm. Bear in mind, these are people who work in mental health and meet consumers in inverted commas all the time. Yeah. So there's this cognitive dissonance for them of, hold on, you're just one of my colleagues. You can't be one of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hello and welcome back to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions workers talk about what it's like to do this work when you have big feelings of your own. I'm Graham Panther. Welcome to my co-host, Gareth Edwards. Hello, big feelers. So today's episode is called How Out Should I Be at Work? In this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about each of our own experiences of being out or not so out about our mental health backgrounds in different work contexts. But first, we're going to share some of what you, our dear listeners, have told us about whether or not you're out about your own lived experience in your workplaces. And we have some hard data for once on this otherwise soft and tender show. Um, We did a survey. This comes from a few years ago now, late 2019. We did a survey of our first set of listeners and big feels clubbers, really. So people who are part of the online peer support network that I run called the Big Feels Club. We just wanted to get a sense of for those who worked in mental health, what sort of roles were they working in? And did people in their workplaces know that they didn't just work in mental health, they had their own stuff going on? So I just wanted to share a few of the the unique entries, even just the answer to that question, are you out at work? Things like, People know the diagnosis, but not the details. Heard that a bit. Or I'm a peer worker, so it's common knowledge that I've got lived experience, but not the actual content of my experience, Um, which is another interesting one. And then this one in particular struck me. uh, This is from a clinician, so working in a counseling role. My colleagues know I've got lived experience, but I'm private about my views. For instance, I'm a staunch abolitionist of compulsory treatment, but I'm extremely private about that. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. Imagine carrying that every day. Yeah, especially in a clinical context. So th- so these layers of, of what out- outness even looks like there, there's like outness about, yes, I've had some experiences, but how have they shaped me and what, and what am I thinking is a, is a whole other layer. And then just the last one of these, um, I found this quite an evocative answer. Someone said, I don't hide it, but they don't ask. Um, and, then, and then they added, but my self-harm scars are visible. So there's a kind of an interesting, Ooh, wow. yeah, yeah, which is a kind don't of an ask, interesting. Don't tell, but it's, it's, it's there for everyone to see. Yeah, yeah. So there's something there about, yeah, almost an open secret. Mm. You know, there's, yeah, there's a lot there. There's an example that I wanted to to go to. So one of the individual responses, this person. Just, just before you do. Yeah, go on. It just strikes me how incredibly nuanced that actually is. You know, this, well, I suppose we use the language of out and obviously, you know, that came from a different place, but, mm. you know, just the idea that it's, that it's, it's not a binary thing. You're yes. not like, yes, I have mental illness. No, I don't. Yeah. And yes, I'm telling you, no, I'm not like, it's very nuanced. And I wish, I wish I'd had that nuance when I was navigating this, you know, in my sort of, sort of late twenties as I started working in the sector. Mm. that it's it's not just a switch it's no. actually it's actually a lot more contextualized than that 
hundred percent. And I, we were originally going to call this episode, should I be out at work? And we changed the name before recording to, uh, how out should I be at work for exactly yeah. that, that reason? Cause it is a, it's multi-layered and yeah, we'll get into that a bit when we talk about each of our experiences of being out mm. and not, not so out. Just did another couple of examples from the survey, which I think we'll come back to it in, in future episodes. This is a one of the one of the no one knows answers. So no one at work knows. This person is a GP, so working as a doctor. And they just had some real I would describe them as punch in the guts answers to these questions mm. in terms of how I reacted. So they've said, I wish I didn't feel so scared of my secret being found out and ruining my career. Yeah. Which is which is so real and so so important to to consider in this discussion that for some of us there's just no no question even of being out because it would be there's consequences yeah yeah absolutely so this person says yeah being scared of my secret being found out and ruining my career the one question we asked was when when is this most challenging and they said when i have to go and get a script for my antidepressants so i've got all sorts of questions that like how's that happening like yeah. is that a different region or like yeah. is that a secret issue or yeah gosh even just navigating that yeah and again wow. i've heard i've heard this in so many versions from people because you know for obvious reasons perhaps i'm often i think you probably get this too gareth i'm often the person people are honest with for whatever reason i'm often that person that someone tells i think it's because i'm as we'll get to i'm I'm extremely out. So there's kind of a, a little beacon there, a little bit of safety. <laughs> yeah. um, so I've heard from people saying, you know, I chose not to go to hospital this weekend when I I probably thought I, I, I otherwise would because I don't want to go in there and see colleagues of mine and be having these extremely charged, loaded interactions with people who otherwise just wouldn't know that I'm also, a, a you know, a consumer of this service. Yeah. Absolutely. Walking past your own office on your way to get care. That's, you got that's it. pretty rough. You got it. So anyway, back to this this guy, uh, this person, I don't know if they're a man or woman, a GP, saying, again, what's what's challenging about this? They've put how to handle a client's question. If they ever ask, have I suffered from a mental illness myself? And knowing that I'll be lying when I answer them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's... That's really unpleasant. There's something I can resonate with. I've been in those positions of clients asking me, what would you know and do you know and just not being able to speak to my own experience in the role I was in. It's a really tough place pragmatically, but it's also a tough place for your soul to hear you lying to yourself. Mm. Yeah. And then the last one, this GP says in their survey response, I feel ashamed that I feel ashamed about having a history of depression. Yeah, that meta shame. It's just layers shame, isn't it? It just keeps yep. on going, keeps yep. on going. Yeah. Another one we'll share here. Uh, this is from a clinician. And I'll just read their whole quote because it's there's a lot here. Not knowing when I'm going to have a bad mental health period and the impact it'll have on the people I work with. Having to cancel sessions, leading to them feeling they're waiting too long. Not knowing when something will be triggering and how long that will impact my mental well-being. Some colleagues knowing that I experience anxiety and panic attacks, but not knowing the frequency or about my trauma or experiences of depression. Not having enough time and space to debrief. We get four free counseling sessions a year, which never feel like enough. 
I mean, that feeling that you're not able to deliver a good job to somebody who's in a situation that might be similar to your own, mm. you know, like a, a mechanic who feels they can't fix somebody else's car or something like it's just, I just don't know if there's parallels in, in, in the rest of the world, you know, like it's such a, such an unusual situation to be in. Mm. And then I actually think there's probably, I mean, it's all subjective, but to have people know a little bit about your story, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very tricky place to be. Because what else, how are they filling in the blanks and reacting to you once they've filled in the blanks? Completely. Yeah. Yeah. So this sort of brings us to our stories in this space. Uh, so do you want to go first or you want me to? So we've got your coming out story of when you first started disclosing at work about your lived experience and then we've got my going in story which i'll get to (laughs) i wonder if mine's more usual than yours i've never seen anybody else but you do what you did so So let's go with you then we'll go with the gareth's coming out story so tell us tell us about that set the scene so i'll tell you the the actual coming out story there's a bit of a prequel to it though in that i went to a conference and was asked to write a piece for a a mental health magazine called Pendulum, which you know speaks mostly to people with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which mm-hmm. was the diagnosis I got. Mm-hmm. Someone asked me to go and write an article for it. And I guess like I didn't say I had my own experience when I wrote the article, but I didn't not say it either. Yeah. So I felt like I had this little taster of what it might be like to have my name next to something that was sort of, you know, a bit more explicit. Mm. Um, but that was back in the UK. Then when I came, and, and I knew all that pressure, that whole, like, what if someone reads it and makes assumptions, you know, what's he going to say for me to be in Pendulum, all the fear for your job and all the rest of it that we've seen in the survey, it was very real for me. Um, and when I came to New Zealand, I didn't not disclose. Well, I probably did, but I mean, I was working in homelessness, so I didn't, I didn't particularly need to. And it wasn't the roles that, you know, required you to do so. It mm. wasn't the norm either. So I got this job as a researcher, and I've been doing it for about uh, maybe nine months, just at the point when the the reforms that we were in in New Zealand, so this was kind of early 2000s, just at the point where it was like, there's actually now money to be made if you're doing consumer work. Hmm. Uh, my job was coming to an end, and I knew there were these grants and opportunities for funding. And I thought, Maybe I should go and tell my bosses, you know, because they were building this little research department. Maybe I should tell them and then we can go for these grants and I can keep my job Mm. and we can build and grow. And and it was really driven by that rather than any other sort of, like I hated working in the sector that was, you know, that I felt had done me so wrong. Mm. But it was all right and I'd had a career. Anyway, I I remember thinking, right, I'll do it and I'll just go and tell them that I've been a consumer. Yeah. You know, there's this whole beautiful mm. discourse coming around being lived and living experience. Yeah. As if this this stuff ever goes away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I thought what I'll do is I'll pick my moment, I'll pick one of the bosses who's probably, you know, a little bit more um sympathetic. And bearing in mind my bosses at the time were a psychiatrist and a pharmacologist. Mm-hmm. So very much in that, you know, medical frame of things. That's the kind of research we were doing was very medical informed. So anyway, I, I went. I think I wait till a Friday afternoon because I knew I'd need some space after it. 
And I went in around about sort of four, four thirty, and I said, Oh, can I, can I just have a quick word? Mm. And sat down, I shut the door. So obviously there was shame and secrecy. I said, Listen, what did I say? I posted, Listen, I, I, I want to tell you this because I think it might help us build this center and help me keep my job. Mm. She said, Yeah, okay. I said, well, I said, Well, I've actually been a consumer myself. And if that helps us go for grants and stuff, then I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really open to the idea of being seen in that way. Mm. And the response was just like tumbleweed. Mm. And just to see this face go frozen and not know what to say next. Mm. Bear in mind, these are people who work in mental health and meet consumers in inverted commas all the time. Yeah. It was just, I don't know if it was the talking dog syndrome because I had plenty of other credentials to be in that team. Say more about the talking dog syndrome. I'm trying to remember what the parable is. Basically, if a dog talks, it's no longer a dog. So if you're a dog talking, then it can't be a dog. It's like one of those sort of sort of riddles. So there's this cognitive dissonance for them of, hold on, you're just one of my colleagues. You can't be one of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think because I used a label rather than anything else, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the mind goes. It's like you're a consumer. So what does that mean? What's your diagnosis? Are you on medication? Have you received hospital treatment? All those questions that flood the, flood the brain as soon as you say, I have this experience. Flood the brain and completely from the sounds of it, um, destroy any chance of connection and presence in that moment. Yeah, and, and I certainly knew, and it was borne out by the aftermath, that that was an absolute turning point. Like, it was never the same again at work. Mm. Um, I guess as as growth goes, they they saw the potential, so I got to speak to higher-up bosses and share my dirty little secret even mm. higher up the chain, more, mm. more shut doors and quiet conversations. Mm. But in terms of that sort of the friendliness that we had and the, the ease of connection, I instantly became one of them, not one of us. Instantly. Yeah. That's how it felt. Yeah. And, and left soon after, like it was untenable. Yeah. Um, even though the work was available, it's like, nah, I can't, I can't keep walking in here feeling that way. Fuck. It's my, my first reaction. <laughs> it, it actually really, um, you're giving me flashbacks here, Gareth, because you know what that tumbleweed reminds me of, and it's something that'll be very familiar to our listeners, whether or not you've ever come out at work. It's coming out to anyone. Like, you know, I remember telling, I've written about this before, the first person I ever told that I was really, really struggling, and I'm talking really struggling, um, was my best mate who was in the beginning of a car ride and it was a half-hour car ride and he didn't say a word for the rest of the car ride. Not a single word. And that's not an unfamiliar experience, right? So, I mean, there's a, yeah, there's just a, there's a resonance there between coming out. It's sort of it's almost like it brings up all the same shit you had to deal with when you first asked for help. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. I used to I used to do a lot of more pre- presenting at conference, and I often used to open with, you know, my name's Gareth Edwards, and I've got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Now, there's two questions most people in this room are thinking. One. Is he medicated? And two, has he taken enough of it today? Yes. Because it's just that you, even if even with all the nuance of understanding and richness, it's really hard not to go to, to, to first base on this. 
Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more then what happened next? You left that job. Things were never the well, same there. Yeah. So then I took a job that was part of this, this like minds, like mind community that was spoken about um, on this podcast. Um, and that was an explicit lived experience role because I realized I'd done it. And maybe the intention had made it a little bit wonky. So I'd done it because I thought it was good business. Mm. Good for my career, good for this center, and not because I thought I could genuinely add something of value. So, yeah, sitting with that made me look around for these other roles, and I thought, actually, now I've said it to these people, and it's a very small world in uh, in New Zealand. I thought, well, I might as well just keep going and, and get an actual role where it's on the badge. Yeah, yeah. and then when you did that. Can you remember, like, because that's a quite a different sort of a disclosure, isn't it? When you're applying for, for the role as "Hello, I'm crazy." Um, do you remember? Like, I'm curious what the equivalent of the tumbleweed conversation was. Was there a was there a point at which someone gave you a better response in a human? Well, way? yeah, it's funny actually because that first role wasn't explicitly lived experience. It was like mine's, but it was like you know we welcome applications from. As in, it's not uh essential but we'll look favorably upon you if you yeah. have lived experience so i did disclose in the interview and on the application mm. but essentially they said yeah we would have given you the job anyway is, is, is the vibe i got because i've got the skills they needed yeah so i didn't have a named role although some people on the team did but i was very I, you know I, that's where i learned my craft of disclosure and I Go learned on. it from a colleague of ours, uh, Johnny Matteson. His name might be familiar to some of the, the listeners as well. I mean, he's been doing this. You know, he was back in the day with Mary O'Hagan and and Chris and Arana. You know, really doing the work when it was you know deinstitutionalization time. Yeah. And um, you know, he's been sharing his story. He did a thing that was simply called Johnny's story. That was a groundbreaking, first of its kind. You know, personal testimony disclosure. So I learned the. The, the the trick of it all from him and watching him, how he did it and getting his coaching and mentoring and his guidance and still do like he's still a very dear friend and mentor in that regard and johnny for those who don't know is he's an advocate he's also a musician yeah. um and i was struck by the word you used there saying you learned the craft of of disclosing Ooh. Um, and when we get to my bit, I, I use the same word actually. So I'm curious about that because there is this kind of sense of like crafting. I don't know if it's crafting a narrative. I don't know if it's crafting a persona that's sort of more true than it might be, but not the whole truth for a work setting. I'm kind of curious what you make of that. Yeah, definitely. I think any storytelling is primarily about the audience. So you you look around and you go, what form of this story do people want? Yeah. What what would be the use of me telling people this in this moment? Yeah. And and there's lots of that, but but learning to read the room, understand what feels comfortable for you, get some good practice at it. I think it is a craft because with practice it becomes easier and easier. Mm-hmm. You know that that line I did at conferences. I didn't do that in my first year, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that came from testing that out and seeing how it felt and seeing how I felt that day, two days later, a week later. Yeah. 
it's funny because you mentioned learning from Johnny and I think I learned this from you, which is that uh, the moment in a meeting where you get to introduce yourself Ooh. is the moment where all eyes are on you. It's the, it's the moment you have the mic, right? And Ooh. one thing about um, people in more typical roles, like when you have a job title, like I'm the psychiatrist or whatever, you can introduce yourself very quickly. We have to often introduce ourselves with more words, with more of a story. Ooh. And I think what I learned from you is to lean into that um, and to, to tell a story. Um, I I used to feel like I had to slip it all in and kind of be like, oh, and I have lived experience as well. And it was all very quick and it was sort of almost, uh, let's just get this out of the way. Whereas now I kind of luxuriate um, in it. I tell the story of, you know, um, I in my early 20s, I experienced a period of profound uh, unreality and distress or, you know, whatever I feel like, whatever the, the craft version of it is that day, I'll kind of feel into it. Um, and that feels so much more comfortable now than it did 15 years ago when I started doing that. Yeah, and the thing that I've seen you do that that I'm going to borrow as well because I think it's really good is you, you you flag that. I've seen you do this in a few times when we've met with new people. You say, I'm just going to take a minute to give you some context. Mm. So everybody settles down then. It's like, it's not, hi, I'm Graham, I'm this. And mm. then we move on. It's like, settle down. It's time for a story. Like, you know, I'm going to give you some context. <laughs> And that that's that's part of the craft, I think, and that carves you out a little bit of space in that moment. Mm. Um, me and Johnny used to I'll do a little segue. Me and Johnny used to do this little. It, it wasn't a trick. We stumbled across it. We we're doing discrimination workshops in inpatient units, so literally going to the IPU and doing it with staff in their break or whatever, or wow. our professional development. Wow! And Johnny's Johnny's a master. Like he just ran the room like an absolute whiz. And he plays songs and he tells his story and he do great group exercises, get people really in their heart and thinking and feeling. And I was like, he's straight guy. Mm. So this, I'll tell you all this was, we had an overhead projector slides. We didn't have PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> so we're back with plastic and lamps and all of that. So I was basically the straight guy and I'd do sort of, you know, the more factual content and, you know, basically be his offsider. Mm. And then, And then I think the first one we did we revealed halfway through that I also had a diagnosis of bipolar and had been in hospital. Yeah. And the whole room was just like, oh, that can't be right. He's the, he's the clever one. He's the yeah. one with the, power, he's the, one yeah. with the slides. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So using that cognitive dissonance can be can be really, really fun and yeah. part of the craft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Mm. To answer your question, I've never had a good response in an employed situation to my disclosure of my own personal experience so then if you want to cover that or if you just want to go to your going in story no let's let's hear more on that so so it's, so it's it's shades of tumbleweed is that is that what i'm getting yeah yeah what would be a good response to disclosure at work the ideal response would yeah. be something like welcome here's all your colleagues who are also coming from their own lived experience or living experience. Mm. As in, you're not alone. We've got this sorted. We've got a whole bunch of you. We know how to do this. That would be great. It's almost, a, I'm realizing again, there's this just sort of heartbreaking parallel between what it's like to come out at work and what it's like to ask for help. 
Um, and we talk about this a bit, Gareth, you and I, with the Big Feels Club. So Big Feels Clubs is our global peer support initiative. Uh, one of the big ideas of the Big Feels Club is what would it be like if when you asked for help, instead of only ever talking to a professional, you were you were immediately inducted into a community of fellow travelers um, at whatever level of depth you wanted it to be, whether it's getting a newsletter or whether it's going to a monthly meetup or whatever. Um, and I remember we had a conversation recently with a, a PHN we were talking to about what we do. And, and I was talking about, um, you know, currently the system is still so much set up around private pain. You go and you talk to the professional about your pain, then you go home with that pain. And the person we were talking to at the PHN had a really nice turn of phrase. They said, it's almost like we've got the private pain model right now in, in terms of mental health or, or primary care. And it's the same thing here, right? It's like <laughs> when you disclose, I agree, what you want is connection and community. Absolutely. I can imagine, yeah. I can imagine, you know, multiple versions of that tumbleweed conversation are happening. And those people don't ever meet each other or know. And I can imagine many more versions of that conversation are just never happening. You know, that that 10 to 15% in our survey who say no one fucking knows. Um, yeah. yeah, and what I'm seeing a lot of, and obviously it applies to those who aren't disclosed, but even people in designated roles, mm. like I've seen a lot of people showing up for, for, for meetings and things and saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm the lived experience member of the team. Boom, done. And it's like, just you? Like, and has anybody sort of thought about how and why and the context for all of that? Yes. Yeah. It's just become a kind of linguistic token. Mm. And I, I think there's a real danger as we go forward with this whole reform in Victoria that, you know, remember, these are real life experiences. This is not just a label that we say, yes, we are, no, we're not. Yeah, it ain't just a job. Yeah. So saying it or, or even holding that experience is very, very tender. Yep. And I know there's a lot of lot to do, but we need to remember these are human beings. And, and what we'll do is, and what we found here in New Zealand, is we'll just burn through people real well, quick. To, to go back to that point of crafting the way you say it, one of the reasons we have to craft it is because it's so fucking vulnerable. You know, you want to say it in just the right way because you want to not reveal too much, but you want to, you know, you don't want to, it's such a vulnerable thing to do in a professional Ooh. setting to say, hey, I'm a fuck up. Now that's, <laughs> that's not what you're really saying, but that's what it feels like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that really nicely segues into my, so we've had your Ooh. coming out story. Here's my going in story because my first coming out story was what you just described i worked i was 23 i went completely crazy i had a drug induced i still don't know what to call it i i had about two years of feeling like the world wasn't real anymore and just absolutely filled with terror minute by minute this is just one of my experiences this is not Ooh. you know not my only lived experience but that was that was what got me into mental health because i was so desperate and it had such a shit time asking for help that i was willing to try anything and the thing that ended up being most useful was working in mental health <laughs> yeah. um 
primarily because I didn't really work in mental health. I worked for this this new, relatively new agency called Mind and Body, which was our one of our first and biggest peer-run mental health services, meaning everyone from the CEO to the cleaner had lived experience. There was only about 30 staff when I started, but about 80 odd by the time I left. And so imagine that as a service of 80 staff, all of whom have lived experience. And of course, all the community we serve as well. So this whole kind of, we call it in New Zealand, whanau, like a like a wider family that you're inducted into from day one. Ooh. I remember the training, like our CEO comes to the training and gives a spiel on how he went mad. It's like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? Um, and so that is to me exactly what you're describing. And I, I often say this and I say it, I say it to get a laugh when I introduce myself, but I, but I fucking mean it, which is uh, that was the single most nourishing place to have an ongoing nervous breakdown. Ooh. And it really was like, I wasn't, I wasn't, they actually told me years later, cause I worked there for a number of years and did really well there, but they told me, Yes, they, they were like, we nearly didn't hire you because you were so raw in terms of recovery. Like I was so in the thick of it. They said, we nearly didn't hire you. And I said, I'm bloody glad you did. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, my coming out story was yeah, very different to yours. Uh, however, <laughs> um, I then moved to Australia. So that was all in New Zealand. Um, by the time I turned 30, I moved to Australia. Uh, and went and worked for a big mainstream mental health agency and realized how lucky I'd had it to begin with. Realized how unusual my experience had been, Um, which has continued to drive a lot of this work I do now is sort of to try and kind of recapture something of that experience I had in my early 20s for all those of us who haven't had that um, in whatever small way I can. So... I have a going in story rather than a coming out story, which is, and you remember this, Gareth, because I'd been doing a bit of work for you. You had a profile of me on your website where I was using all the all the type of language I used to use so casually in New Zealand about my madness. You know, that was a word yeah. we used a lot. I stole that from Mary Hagen. You know, she still uses that word. Um, I moved to, to Australia and realized, oh, the culture's a bit different over here. Partly because... Uh, we hadn't had the Like Minds program you've mentioned in the last episode, yeah. which was this this really brilliantly conceived, really well-resourced anti-stigma, anti-discrimination campaign in New Zealand that did shift the landscape in very measurable ways. So partly it's it's I got here and I thought, oh, we're a few years behind here. I might want to be a little bit more careful with my disclosure. And partly it's cause I was I was there, there are no peer-led organizations here or, or you know weren't any equivalents that I could work for. So I was going for a job in a mainstream organization. And whilst they I was ticking a box, even 10 years ago, I was ticking a box of, yeah, we need to hire someone with lived experience. That didn't mean I wanted to tell them everything. And so yeah. I I I scrubbed the internet basically. I got I got you to delete the page you had of me talking about my madness i scoured the web for various other because i did all sorts of press in new zealand in my 20s i did an interview in the the main newspaper about um that's right yeah going completely crazy like all this stuff that that in the context of being 30 looking for a job in a much more mainstream setting i was like shit so i did my best to scrub all that from google 
So um, I just realized I came out to get a good job and you went in to get a good job. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Went, went in a little way, yeah, because yeah. I was still saying I have lived experience, but I wasn't yeah. telling them everything. And, and one of the particular ways we talk about crafting the story, one of the ways that I, I found myself talking about it a lot in that period of time, so this is about 10 years ago, is I would talk about it in the past tense. Mm. Um, as this thing that happened when I was 23, and I'd choose my words carefully um, as to just how much of it I would I would express. Part of that is that at that age, that is kind of how I thought of it. Like I kind of thought I was done with all that mental health stuff when I was 30. Um, then I got divorced and had a injury that led to a chronic pain issue. And both of those did my head in so completely that it kind of opened up all the childhood trauma shit that I'm still dealing with now that I thought was in a nice neat little box somewhere. So certainly uh now I am no longer talking about things as as past tense. But that's been a process. Um and it's all it comes back to what you said, Gareth, in your story. It's about context. Mm-hmm. So if we think about the that GP we mentioned in the beginning, in his context or her context, there's just no other option now maybe that's true maybe that's not but that's certainly how they feel they feel yeah, there's yeah. no other option right in your context at work it was it sort of seemed initially to be this binary do i tell do i not and then you realize how, how much more nuanced that is in my setting it's like being a i think of it as a uh this long path this long pathway i'm on of bringing my my personal and my professional selves closer and closer together um but it's all about context so in that mainstream setting yes i could be a bit honest but i couldn't be completely honest and even Mm -hmm. if i had been able to be completely honest they they wouldn't even be able to hear it you know they they couldn't hear the nuance i kind of had to create the nuance and so to be honest that's why i started the big fields club with my uh, partner on recently is like both of us had, you know, she'd worked at Headspace and various other places, and we both had these experiences of the setting we're working in is so binary. It's it's are you or aren't you, but the world we are from is nuanced and messy Ooh. and creative, and so we started this essentially arts based uh, initiative, Big Fields Club, which is mostly writing to begin with to to start being able to be more honest in a way that was yeah more more nuanced and so these days i I say you know uh certainly no it's certainly not something that happened to me in the past it's very much a, a present tense thing i often say something like my life is shaped by periods of profound crisis and distress um oh nice because <laughs> it fucking is <laughs> uh and even then there's still spectrums of, of how honest like so i'll say that through my big feels work i'll say that here do i say that in my consulting website sort of yeah how honest am i maybe not completely as much as in the big feels context when i'm also saying and please hire me for this job um so it's yeah it's complex it's crafting isn't it and this audience yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one last thing on that, uh, lest you think I'm a complete oversharer, uh, I have been working on a book idea for a while and I had this big brainstorm with Anna recently, my partner about what it could be about. 
and we we did the brainstorm of like what if it was completely honest what if it was all the things you don't even say <laughs> through big fields and i did a whole lot had about a week of sitting with that idea and brainstorming i could say this and i could tell this story from my childhood and this thing and then there was just something in my body that went nope <laughs> and just shut down and i was suddenly yeah. like i am not writing that book and i found that really interesting because i didn't know i had that line still but i definitely do yeah well i mean it's everything you speak speaks to me but one of the things was um you know i'm going through my own um next stage of journeying at the moment mm. and it revealed a whole bunch of stuff that i've never shared mm-hmm. i'm on the verge of sharing mm-hmm. but i've shared a lot you know i spoke a lot about my um, diagnosis and my hospital treatment and my recovery but not this bit mm. and so the way i got this bit out of me is i wrote the untold story which I'm sure is a phrase I heard in IPS, uh, peer support, somewhere in those realms anyway. And I think even if you've got a story, even if you do share, there's bits of it that you'll just be like, nah, that's not now and maybe never. It's just, you know, you, you don't have to bear your whole soul. Mm. I did think of another earlier disclosure story that might actually be a good one. And Go I, on. I wonder if there's space to share it. Please. It's quite funny in a sort of peculiar way so after i left hospital and after i kind of bounced back from the depression they kicked me out with i got a job as a pot wash Mm. so still pretty much speechless just washing pots in a alcohol detox and rehab unit Mm -hmm. anyway as things began to improve i took a job as a support worker the nurse aide. i think i mentioned that yeah between the nurse aide in a different pod so I'm working in a nurse-based unit, nurse-led, run like clockwork, as you'd imagine. All addiction nurses, specialists, really great centre, really great service, doing 10-day detoxes. And I was second day on the job, walked out to the nursing station. Yeah, we had you know, a huge number of people come through. Door one opens, which is opposite the, the, the desk there where you, know, you sit and be available. And out walked a lady that I'd been on the inpatient ward with. <laughs> and not only just a lady I've been on the inpatient ward with, a lady who'd assaulted me, and there'd been a critical incident, and there'd oh. been a whole lot of hoo ha. Jesus. And we just looked at each other, and obviously, she just assumed I was in there for a detox. Mm. I was a fellow patient. We'd, we'd, we'd done time, as it were, on the ward. Yeah. And then she noticed that I was on the other side of the desk. Yeah. Playing with the files and responding to staff. And I mean, she, she was shot, I was shot and we both just peeled away and I was like, I can't work here. Mm. I knew ethically there was going to be a problem anyway, just because of the connection between myself and this person. So I knew even, you know, whatever else I had to mention that. So I literally had to go to the bathroom, compose myself, come back in and ask the head nurse, you know, the, the, the matron as it would be now, I need to have a word with you in real time three minutes after it happened and I said I told us look that person who's in room one I was on a psychiatric ward with about six months ago and she was great Mm. she said thanks for telling me yeah you're going to go home because there is a bit of a conflict here and it's going to be tricky Mm. just take the rest of the shift off we'll cover you let me work out the plan didn't even talk about the fact that I just disclosed that I'd been on the psych ward six months ago. Yeah. Just said, just did 
did the thing, did the practical thing, yeah. was really supportive, and then we worked out a plan. Wow. And it was never it was never an issue. Yeah. But this was a bit like your mind and body place. It wasn't on the badge because it's addictions and it's just assumed, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. I just wanted to share that because it is you sat on the other side of it thinking, should I, how much do I? And all that nuance that we talked about right at the top of the uh, the show. Mm. It's like, yeah, there can be some real gold there. There can be some really good experiences. Yes. And what I'm hearing in that story in particular is that it, it wasn't, <laughs> it was sort of, there's almost a grace to that. Like that, that was almost completely out of your control. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, you sort of weren't sat there wondering, should I, shouldn't I? It just sort of had to happen. Yeah, and I wonder if you if you put in those dilemmas, a bit like we heard from the, the GP, like, you know, sometimes like the, you know, that cliche of the obstacle being the way, like, like mm. grapple with it, get into it, like see if you can spend a bit of your time teasing out what's the best it could possibly be. Yeah. Imagine a GP turn around and go, yeah. Yeah, depression. Yeah, yeah, panic attacks now and again. But I imagine that if that's your first consult. Well, the classic example is Russ Harris, so uh, the author of The Happiness Trap, which is the like ah yeah best book on acceptance and commitment therapy um, that I've been devouring for the second time recently. Uh, Russ Harris is a GP, and uh, mm. he talks about he gives some great examples in that book of you know. The, the stories in his head about how shit a GP he is and how he's probably going to get people killed and how yeah. he deals with those stories. And he's like, those thoughts have never gone away. I've just stopped, mm. stopped taking them so seriously. And there's something mm. so great about that example because you're like, oh, even a GP. <laughs> yeah. So the title of the episode is How Out Should I Be at Work? And I don't know that we're really answering that directly, but the thing that I want to go to is there's no should about it. I think is kind of the mm. short answer. There's no shit about it because, like I said at the top, there are a million good reasons. We've got a survey full of 100. There are a million good reasons not to be out or not to be totally out or to hold some things back. You've heard a bit in our stories and a bit from these survey examples of, of what that can look like and how mm. it can change over time. Uh, a few other ones that I've heard a bit, like literally unsafe work environments and and mental health and addictions are not immune from what we see across the working world, which is unsafe work environments, shit bosses, um, who will take any sign of so-called weakness and use it against you. Mm. Now, I would hope that's not the norm, but it's certainly not that rare. Mm. So uh, there are all sorts of things you'll hold back in a work environment for all sorts of good reasons. And you'll go carefully and slowly because that makes sense and yeah. then and then you'll have situations that come up like uh as gareth has mentioned uh, one completely out of his control where suddenly disclosure was just happening <laughs> and another where he thought about it and, and you know tried to find the right way through yeah there's just no should about it i think that's my headline yeah absolutely and maybe maybe taking a long-term view like if this is your the focus of your career, you've got years, decades to explore this. And, you know, as you, as you've seen with Graham, you know, been out, been in, you know, you shake it all about. It's like a little bit of a hokey cokey. You can, you can mix it up and change it over time and make yeah. it what it needs to be. I yeah. guess if you're doing it with awareness and intent, 
then then that's different from should. It's like yeah. I've had a jolly good think about this and this is why I think I'd want to do it and how I'd want to do it. Yeah, and I, I have a, we, have, we have a mutual friend, um, colleague named Ian, who has this really nice phrase uh, he's shared with me a few times, which is to stay attached to the intent. Mm. Um, uh, we, we talk about it in the context of he and I are both uh, very introverted humans and keeping up with our friends can be challenging at the best of times. And he says when he's got you know, all those people on his guilt list that have gotten in touch and he hasn't gone back to, he, he tries to stay attached to the intent of getting in touch with them, even if it might take another Ooh. two months. Um, and I think that there's something there, going back to our GP again, where he, he talks about feeling ashamed for feeling ashamed. Ooh. There's something about letting ourselves off the hook a little bit. Here. Absolutely. Um, where, you know, so often the way we stay attached to the intent of, I should be more out or I should be this or that for sensitive people. The way we stay, stay attached to the intent is through the prism of shame and guilt. I mm. haven't done this yet. Why haven't I done this yet? Whereas I wonder if there's just a different possibility there of, I might one day be more honest. Currently, I don't see how I could be, but mm. I might, but I might one day. And and the context itself is so crucial to that. Um, you know <laughs> that we've you've heard from our stories that the the wild range of contexts in which you could even be honest and how different that makes the message itself um and the outcome so yeah even just yeah what what what's possible one day rather than what haven't i done yet and why not yes beautiful yeah cool well we might leave that there um it's something we'll come back to, uh, depending on, you know, what guests are keen to be on the show. We have some interesting um, possibilities to explore this sort of thing a bit further. Um, yeah, and if you get the chance, you know, if the survey comes your way, we'd really love to hear all sorts of experiences in this realm. Like, mm. typically our sector is reasonably dark-focused. So, you know, if, if you've got good experiences or mixed or nuanced, then, yeah, we'd love to hear them. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Gareth Edwards. This is Big Feels at Work. We'll see you next time. Okay, cool.